everybody, and welcome to episode 824 of Go Roku. Fuck. How about English? Welcome to episode 8 of the Hey Kerwin Show. 8 is actually my lucky number. It is the number that never ends. It is like the ring that uh, continues to prosper. I don't know where that comes from. Rodney Hurst on YouTube, he says, Hey Kerwin, what can you tell me about startup capital? Is it better to take a loan or find an investor? Great question, Rodney. There's three types of capital. Uh, I'm going to keep it really simple. There's what I'd call dumb capital, smart capital, and smart connected capital. So the last two really fall into the investors, but when it comes to the dumb capital, uh, dumb capital I refer to you know friends, family, fools, anyone that is able to give you money uh, based on the situation you're in. Banks are very popular, especially for startups to get access to money, but the challenge that you have with many banks is oftentimes when they give you cash or when they give you capital, it comes with a lot of caveats that are within those contracts, meaning that if the business doesn't perform at a certain level, and you know, if you're not hitting certain numbers, certain margins, that they can actually come in and essentially foreclose on any of the assets that you're using for security. And that's the second biggest challenge with getting access to funds from a bank. In most cases, they're going to want security. You know, unless it's a personal loan, maybe sub $10,000 or sub $20,000, you might be able to get access to funding from a bank. Or maybe you have a line of credit already set up on a house or a property, okay, or a credit card that you might be able to get access to. But when it comes to just a basic business loan, uh, you're going to be, it's going to be fairly difficult depending on the market that you're in, depending on the, um, the, the credit criteria, the credit restrictions at the time. But if you are able to get a significant investment from a bank or a significant loan from a bank, okay, I'm talking let's say 50, 100, $150,000, $200,000 plus, uh, in 99% of situations, unless you, you've, you, know, you got kissed on the dick by a fairy, you're going to require your assets to be held as security, which means, as I said, if anything happens in the business, if let's say it's your house, your house is essentially up for grabs for the bank. So unless you're on a sure thing or unless you know what you're going to do is going to be very successful, I have never actually funded from a bank. Uh, because basically because of those restrictions and those rules. And I've just never felt confident putting other assets on the line when I've been really going for to, to launch and start businesses. However, the second types of capital, and actually I'm going to talk about a third, a fourth type of capital as well, is smart capital. Now smart capital is typically angel investment, can be VC or early stage seed investment. Uh, smart capital is essentially where you go to get to get investment from someone. Now that investment could be in the form of equity, meaning that they become a, an owner in your business, or it could be in the form of debt. You can actually get debt as a form of investment. Investment. So if someone is loaning you money based on debt, you're probably going to have to give them an above average interest rate. You know, I think the going rate for a credit card right now is 11 or 12 percent. Okay, so that's where it's going to be a starting point. You know, for investor capital if it's being lent based on a debt uh, criteria or a debt instrument. But you might end up paying if you're actually getting investment from a, an investor based on a debt instrument. You could be paying anywhere between 10, 20, 30, up to 40 percent. And that's pretty intense. But the beautiful part is, if you've got a really strong cash flow, you can pay that money back very quickly. They get their 40% net over the you know, three, six, 12 months or however long the period of the debt uh, is laid out. But once you extinguish the debt, you then retain full ownership of your baby. Now, when we look at equity, and this is where a lot of people get this story completely wrong and think, oh, I don't want investors because I don't want to lose control. Now, there's two things you need to understand. First of all, someone actually needs to have a controlling stake in your company to be able to tell you what to do. Secondly, you can actually issue shares. If you're going to be selling a major portion of your company, you can actually decide intelligently what type of shares that you can issue. You can actually issue more than 50% of equity in your company to an investor, but you might issue them a portion of non-voting shares, which means as long as you hold the greatest proportion of the voting shares. Mark Zuckerberg is a perfect example. He only owns, oh God, crap, don't hold me to this, but I think it's somewhere between 18 to 26% of Facebook. That's his actual equity stake, but he owns 56% of the voting rights in, sta in, in uh, Stakebook. Stakebook. Hmm. 
Um, so a nice little caption there. So as a result, you know, and I, I honestly believe that he set that deal up based on the mistakes that other people have made before him. Steve Jobs is a perfect example. He got voted out of his own company because although he was the founder, although he started that company with Woz, you know, it got to the point where the board was actually able to oust him out because they had a stronger, they had a bigger vote than he did, which was able to get him out of the company. So you don't necessarily have to give up control of your company when you're taking investment, even beyond what would be considered like uh, the controlling stake. As long as you maintain the controlling uh, voting shares within the, within the company that you're raising capital for, you're not going to have any problems with someone trying to tell you what to do. But you've also got to understand an investor doesn't necessarily want to tell you what to do in your business. That's not an investor's job. An investor's job is to find things that he can put his money into so that the money can go to work. But the reason I say we're looking for smart money, okay, is what I'm looking for an investor with anything that I'm looking for an investment in, whether it be for clients, businesses, or, or, or funds that I'm working on, or, or deals that I'm working on, I'm looking for someone that can bring not only money to the table, but that's as far as I'm concerned, that's probably the least most important thing. The thing that I'm looking for before we even get to the money conversation is do they actually have some smarts? Do they have some intelligence that they can actually give to me and provide to me that's going to add value beyond just the capital? Because otherwise capital is capital. Capital is just capital. It's money. It's there. It's sitting there. You can use it okay, to, to, to grow the business. But there's nothing better than getting smart capital. Capital that comes with really nice strings attached. And the strings that I'm referring to are intelligence, it's experience, it's insights. You know, it, I'm ideally looking for someone who's got ex extended, ex extended levels of experience in that particular industry or that business or, or that type of business so that they can not only give me their money, because once they've given me their money, they're invested. And now it's going to be worth their while to share with me their knowledge and experience. And it's almost like, think of it this way, smart capital is like getting an investor to pay you to mentor you. Think of it that way. That's fucking cool, right? Why wouldn't you want to do that? But it, uh, oftentimes people think, well, if I give away shares in my company, you know, I'm going to lose control. But here's the thing. You can only give away a share once. And once you've given it away, you can't give it away again. So you've got to be really, really smart with how you do allocate shares and who you do allocate shares to in the, uh, in the early stages of investment. However, the third type of capital is what I call smart connected capital. And that's someone who is not only smart and has got experience, but they've also got demonstrated connections that they can bring to the table. So they're not only bringing capital to the, to the table, they're also bringing intelligence and experience to the table. But best of all, they're bringing connections. And connections, oh my God, it's not what you know, it's who you know. You know, your, network, your net worth will be a reflection of your network. And when someone comes to the table who has money, experience, and a network, that's the kind of stuff that can blow a business up overnight. Like, and I'm talking in very short periods of time. That's how you can go from you know, a 1 million valuation to a 20 mil valuation based on increase in revenue super, super quick because you get an investor who comes in and goes, oh, by the way, I know a dude over here and they'll order, you, you're selling what, 200 units a month? I know a dude over here that you know, basically uses 2,000 units a month. He's a good friend of mine. Why don't I just refer the business this way? We'll do him a little bit of a deal because there's a relationship there and boom, your business explodes. Okay, same rules apply. You know, whenever you're getting smart capital, smart connected capital, you want to make sure that obviously you're not giving away a controlling stake. You want to make sure that you're giving away a stake that is, you know, enough for that to warrant their attention and their time. Because some people think, well, I'll just sell them 2%. An investor is not going to be motivated to fucking help you for 2% of your company. It's just not going to happen. And even at 5%, they're probably not going to be really that interested. I would be saying at a minimum, if you're looking at a key investor or a lead investor, you'd be looking to give away, not give away, you'd be looking to sell or apportion a minimum of 10% or more. And obviously understanding that as the business grows and as you start to you know, deliver, um, distribute more shares, there might be a level of dilution involved on that equity. But you, you want to make it, especially if it's a lead investor, as I said, I'm not just saying, have they got money? Are they smart? Have they got experience? Are they connected? Okay, can they actually open doors that can create significant uplifts in revenue really fast? 
Um, and do they actually have the capital as well? But do they have enough capital so that if the capital they give you, they're not going to be sitting there freaking out every night going, oh my God, is this guy going to lose my money? And that's the difference between an investor and someone who's just pretending to be an investor. And there's a lot of people who are pretending to be investors and yeah, they're calling themselves angel, angel, angel investors or VCs and they're basically taking money out of their mortgage to fucking loan to small businesses in the hope and the dream that that business might succeed. Uh, and that's not the type of investor that you want. You want an investor that's going to give you the runway to do what you want. You don't want someone who's going to be ringing you every day saying, how are we going, how are we going, how are we going, because that's just going to be fucking annoying. Now, do we talk about the fourth type of capital? The fourth type of capital, which is my favorite, which is the one that I go to every single time, ha <laughs> ha, fucking sales. Sell something, generate cash flow. Prove that your business, your product, your service actually can work. Because here's the thing, even if you are looking for capital and you have no sales, you're gonna be so unattractive. You're gonna be like, can I say, you're gonna be like the ugly duckling at the ball. No one's gonna ask you to dance, okay, if you've got a face full of smash hammers. We've gotta make sure that the business that we take, when we're, when we're at that stage, when we're looking for investment, legit investment, we're actually not just going, oh, I've got a fucking, oh, I've got an idea for a great pen. Okay, I haven't got a prototype, but I've got this amazing idea. The idea is worth $2 million and I'm willing to sell you a 5% stake. Okay, no, 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 no. If you've got a good idea, you need to be able to bootstrap it to the point where you can actually get it so that you've got a product so that you, or a service that you can actually sell. And if you can sell that puppy, what are you gonna get? You're gonna get feedback. Is it good, is it bad? What needs to change? And you're gonna get that before you have capital, not after you have capital. Because if you get the capital first, then you're probably gonna overdevelop your product, overdo your service and waste a lot of money okay, on not understanding what the market really wants that you wouldn't have wasted if you'd actually tried to bootstrap the thing in the first place and actually tried to give and sell and build and do it yourself when you first, uh, when you first got into business. So here's the thing. The reason I love cash, okay, or sales as a funding strategy is because it lets you know if this thing's gonna work. And if you can actually get to a point where you are self-funded, oh my God, you're free, which means you're gonna be so much more selective. You're gonna be so much, you're gonna be able to apply a much higher level of scrutiny to the investors that are coming in because you're not gonna be desperate. If you don't have any sales, you'll be fucking desperate. You'll take money from anyone, okay, which is what most people do and that's how most of these relationships end up bad. Facebook is another great example. He held off taking capital. People were coming to him and begging to give him money. Zuckerberg had people begging and as a result, he was able to structure shares, okay, well, he was able to structure equity deals whereby he was giving non-voting non shares, okay, non-voting equity to people because they just wanted a piece of the pie. They just wanted to be in on the deal. And the deal was so good and he was so um, not needy or undesperate or abundant, I suppose you could say, that he was able to use that, that strategy. He was able to use you know, the platform and the success of the platform, even though the success at that point wasn't in revenue, but it was certainly in growth and users and data acquisition and yeah, the potential is there to actually get some of the best deals on the table. You'll always get screwed if you don't get sales first, if you go into the investment community, because you're not gonna have anything to leverage off that you can prove that this thing has legs. Fund through cash, fund through sales is always the best option. It's always the first option, but if in doubt, you've got those other threes that you can play with. Kapow! Woo! Should I take a breath? <laughs> Rodney Hurst must be happy with that one. Rodney, if you're not fucking happy with that, I want a, I want a piece of the action. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Moving on, another YouTube comment. YouTube's showing up. YouTube in the house. YouTube <laughs> in the house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mason Links on YouTube says, Hey Corwin, if you have heaps of interests, all of which could make a difference in the world, how do you decide which ones to follow? Pick one. Go down that path, try and commercialize it, 
productize it, productize it, serviceize it, if that's a word, meaning create a service out of it, create a product out of it, and test, see what the market says. But secondly, just go to the one that you're most excited about. But make sure that that excitement is actually grounded in something rational and something realistic rather than just in the excitement of the optimism that can sometimes intoxicate us when we start a business for the first time. Because sometimes this optimism that intoxicates us, you know, which is actually really important because if you weren't intoxicated by this optimism when you started and you knew actually how fucking hard it was going to be, you probably wouldn't start. So let's be honest, the, the optimism and the intoxication that comes from that is a really important part of the process. But you've just got to try. You know, I did 40 different, 48 different jobs before I actually worked out what I actually really wanted to fucking do. And even once I worked out what I had to do, I still had to change. I still, it still morphed maybe a half a dozen or a dozen times into different styles, aspects, models, and you know, because I just wanted to find the, the thing that I loved and then be able to do it in a way that lit me up the most rather than just, because here's the thing, you can do what you love, but if you do what you love in a way that exhausts you continually, if you do what you love in a way that puts you in front of people that you don't like dealing with, then you know, it doesn't matter how much you love that thing, those other things will erode at your motivation and your psychology and it will become, you know, it will become a self-sabotage. So it's important that you not only try different things, but when you find the thing, then consider, okay, I love this thing, but is this the model that this thing should be operated on? And maybe consider trying different models. But you've got to just start with somewhere. Start with something. But here's what I know. If you try and go, well, I like heaps of things. I'm going to just do heaps of things. It's going to be like having one can of water for 20 flowers. And each flower needs one can of water a day. You're going to put a little bit of water on every flower, but they're all going to die because you're not going to have enough juice to actually make any one flower thrive because you're trying to make 20 thrive and you only have the juice to make one thrive. Beautiful. Go where the juice is. Danny Sayers on Facebook. Hey Kerwin, what rituals and habits get you into a peak performance mindset consistently? Okay, so I'm gonna give you two answers, what I used to do, what the consequences of that were, what I do now, and what the consequences of that are now. Um, you know, a long time ago I did this seminar that was teaching you know, some stuff that was related to NLP and I was talking about the importance of physiology and the importance about getting yourself into a peak state and then anchoring that peak state into you know, some form of a physical gesture so that every time you did it, it would take you back to that state. And it was great and it's very powerful and very potent and I still use those anchors today. But what I discovered was me being the excessive obsessive personality is every morning after, do, after learning how to do this, I would go into the shower and I would jump up and down and I would jump up and down and I'd make my move, make my move until I actually felt the adrenaline kick in. There was like adrenaline kick in and then I'm like, right, now I can conquer the world. Uh, the unintended consequence of that is I collapsed five times. I was hospitalized twice with exhaustion because, you know, what the doctors didn't diagnose that, uh, you know, alternative medicine diagnosed not long thereafter is I actually had adrenal fatigue and adrenal burnout. So I'd been constantly using adrenaline through, you know, the ritual of, you know, doing a, what's, you know, considered a power move, but I was abusing the drug, if that makes sense. I was doing it so frequently and so often that if I started to feel my adrenaline wane, I would go and jump up and down the corner and boom, boom, boom. Okay, adrenaline's back. And it just really just deteriorated me uh, mentally, emotionally, uh, physically speci specifically, but even you know, spiritually over time because I started to feel very drained. I was always worn out and I couldn't understand that I'd have these bursts of energy that were followed by these. It was almost like I was on caffeine. You know, I'd have these highs and these lows and I wasn't even drinking coffee. Um, so I, I discovered that that works well for some people, but that method just doesn't work well for me. You know, even backstage now, when people come backstage, they expect to see like an exercise bike or a fucking you know, vibrating thing or a bouncy thing. There's nothing. There's a meditation chair. I met, my, the way I get myself in a peak state is I meditate. If I'm going on the range like to do any tactical training with weapons, I fucking meditate. If I'm about to go on stage and I want to be peak, 
peak state, I will meditate. If I'm about to go into a meeting, it's really important. I need to have my, you know, my ducks in a row. I'll meditate. My go-to ritual, and Matthias knows this inside out, my go-to ritual to get myself back in line is to meditate. My, my version of getting into peak performance is actually going down before I go up. So what that means is some people will try and get themselves into a overhyped peak state. They're using the physiology, adrenaline's kicked in, cortisol's kicked in. I said cortisol, so adrenaline, yes, it'll make you strong, it'll make you fast, but cortisol, that stuff will make you stupid. So for me, you know, I much prefer to use peak performance rituals that are more uh, centering, that are more neutral, that are more balanced. Because look at me, I've just walked in, I'm already fucking speaking at a million miles an hour. I don't need to be pumped up. You know, I need to be calmed down. And when I calm down, I find when I get pumped up, I maintain really high levels of clarity. But if I'm already pumped up and I try to pump up myself even more, okay, I just experience burnout. I experience tiredness. I experience, you know, like a caffeine effect uh, and a stupor sometimes from the, the cortisol that is produced when you amp yourself up on a consistent basis. Now, if you're young and full of, you know, beans, you probably don't even know what, what exhaustion feels like. I remember, oh my God, I still remember like the first time I actually experienced exhaustion. It was in my late 20s. I was like, oh my God, this is horrible. Is this some kind of affliction or disease? But if you're like, let's call it 15 to 25, you know, you're probably going to better pump out all the adrenaline you want and there's not going to be too many consequences for that, okay? But once you get into your later 20s, your early 30s, you know, that's when you will start to pay the price of a high adrenaline lifestyle, which I know firsthand. So for me, my performance methods, my rituals are always about centering. You know, it's always about um, getting the psychology, getting the story, but most importantly, just getting the mind clear. And if my mind is clear, I can do anything. April Sia Dunlop on Facebook says, Hey Kerwin, how do we avoid people getting offended by difficult conversations without being rude or arrogant? Okay, well, first of all, don't be rude or arrogant. Because if you are rude or arrogant, either consciously or unconsciously, that's probably going to be offensive. Um, you know, I am notorious for being very direct. I'm notorious for being very blunt. Um, but in 90, what do you think, what percentage of cases do I offend people? Never. Almost never. Like my, but I, I could be biased, right? That's why I'm asking you. Like, almost never? Probably 2% of the time. 2% of the time? Wow, I was gonna say 1% of the time. Fuck, am I really that offensive? <laughs> I am offensive apparently 2% of the time. Um, I'm gonna argue that, 1.5% of the time. But that normally happens as a result of, you know, a, a lack of situational awareness where something has happened. I've given in direction, I've given a direct command and I, be, I thought I'd been really clear. Um, um, and yet whatever's come back hasn't been in line with the instructions that I've given. And maybe, you know, two out of every hundred times or 1.5 out of every hundred times, I might deliver a piece of feedback that might have a little bit of an edge to it. But 98% of the time, I am very direct, very blunt to the point where if people aren't used to it, it's, you know, they can take them back. But what's interesting is I believe the reason that people take my feedback so well is because there's actually no ego in it. See, when you come and you give someone, if you're being obnoxious, if you're being arrogant and you're trying to, you know, have a difficult conversation, but you're coming from a place of you know better, you're a higher, you're a high authority in this, in this conversation, that's your ego positioning you on a different plane to someone else. Now, when, you know, someone comes in, you know, to talk to you who's better than all knowing, what is that going to bring out in you? That's going to bring out the same in you. And then that difficult conversation is not going to be a difficult conversation. It's going to be a conflict. Okay, whereas for me, I will come into a conversation where their ego is up or down, but I'll come in with no ego. I'll deliver the feedback, whatever it is, very direct, very blunt, and no emotion. But because there's no ego there, they actually have nothing to resist against because it's just words. 
okay? There's no attachment to a position. There's no emotional bias. And so when there's nothing to fight against, oftentimes they will come down to your own level where the ego will be released. Doesn't mean that they may not necessarily get, a, they might go up before they come down because sometimes saying something very direct and very honest to someone can be very offensive and confronting depending on how much experience that they have with conversations like this. Now, everyone on my team, you know, this is like Monday, <laughs> you know, we have these conversations all the time. But if you're doing it in an environment where you perhaps don't have these conversations all the time, there may be a period of two, three, four, five, ten minutes for everyone just to get their egos in check, everyone to check their ego at the door, everyone to just get nice and calm and get very clear on the intent of the conversation is pure, the intent on the outcome is pure. I'm not trying to make you wrong, I'm not trying to make me right. All I'm trying to do is help find a healthy outcome so that we can relate better. But uh, what I do know is I find it far more offensive when someone doesn't tell me the truth than when they do. I, don't, I so rarely get offended, but when I do get offended, it's when I walk out of a conversation and someone says to me, oh, did they tell you about this? And I say, no, and, they go, and I'm like, well, why didn't they tell me about that? Why, why what, what, because to me, I just don't think anyone should be afraid to speak their mind. I think everyone should speak their mind as long as it's done respectfully and in a kind manner that doesn't make anyone wrong or, 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 or judge them. And when someone holds back or if someone augments the truth, and that to me is offensive. But, you know, tough conversations are easy when you check your ego at the door and you just speak honestly and measured. Because I've learned sometimes, this is actually pretty important, when you're having tough conversations, learn when to stop talking. Because sometimes you can get into a routine and a flow and you get the outcome, but then you just think, okay, there's all this vacant space, I'll just keep talking, and it's like sales. Once, once the deal is done, stop talking. Once the conversation is complete, stop talking. You know, everyone stands up and you know, goes, to their, uh, goes to their corners or their, their boxes or wherever they live. Do you live in a box, Manny? You do. You do? I do actually, yeah. uh, Airbnb. Airbnb box. Yeah. 20 bucks a day? Yeah, on the street. Oh my God. That was episode eight of the Hey Kerwin show. I actually think that was a pretty fucking good show. So for those of you who would like to get your questions answered, hashtag Hey Kerwin, whether it's be on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or YouTube, hashtag, use the hashtag Hey Kerwin. Let me know your question, whether it be about life, business, love, spirituality, not about love, spirituality, relationships, not about relationships, food, uh, basically anything. I'm like, doctor, doctor, I am not your guru. Oh, question of the day. What is one ritual or one habit, not 10, one ritual or habit that you do to get yourself in a peak performance psychology, in a peak performance state so that you can do whatever it is that you need to do, be whoever it is you need to be to get whatever it is that you need to get. I want proven tactics, not theory. What do you do to get yourself to state? Hashtag Hey Kerwin. This is number eight, over and out. Thanks for listening to Hey Kerwin. If you would like your questions answered, don't forget to use the hashtag Hey Kerwin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.